Welcome to Owl Have You Know, a podcast from Rice Business. This episode is part of our Flight Path series, where guests share their career journeys and stories of the Rice connections that got them where they are. I realized something that I had really been missing was feeling every day like what I was doing had impact, where I could sit back at the end of the day and say, okay, what I did today mattered. On today's episode of I'll Have You Know, we connect with Lauren Miller, full-time MBA of 2014. Miller started her first business as a student at Rice, and she hasn't slowed down since. A self-proclaimed sustainability nerd, Miller is the executive vice president of Nature-Based Solutions at Grassroots Carbon, an organization also deeply rooted within the Rice ecosystem. Awarded the prestigious 30 Under 30 distinction by Forbes in 2015, Miller has a new title, that of mom. She shares her successes, failures, life lessons, and also how being on the men's fencing team in college shaped who she is today. Hello, everyone. On today's episode of I'll Have You Know, we are going to have a nice chat with Lauren Miller, full-time MBA, the class of 2014. Welcome so much to the program, Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me here today. So Lauren, you have had quite the flight path since your graduation from Rice in 2014. And I want to start from the beginning and your voyage to regenerative agriculture and sustainability. I mean, you really were in the industry of sustainability before it became an industry that is now intertwined in just about every industry, right? Yeah. It, and as you said, it's been a very interesting path. I've been fortunate to work in a variety of industries getting here. And then with my current role, it's actually through a Rice Connection. My current boss was one of my judges in the Rice Business Plan competition. Yes, I saw that. So when you came to Rice, you really jumped right in and met one of your the members of your cohort and started a business together. Yes. So I'd started the business when I was in my second year of the MBA program. And really, it was jumping in with both feet because between your first and second year, you've got that internship. I got a great offer. I had really liked the company with which I had worked. And then I was starting this company for really a class project at the time and ended up just running with it. So fortunately, it had worked for a while, at least. <laughs> yeah, and that was A76 Technologies, correct? Correct. So it was, it was started as A76 Technologies. We had rebranded a few years later to make the Rust Patrol line of products under the Aiden brand company name. So tell me, tell me about A76. And let me just preface this, that you do call yourself a self-proclaimed sustainability nerd, <laughs> right? Yes. And so... It was really funny because when you're looking at chemicals, especially when we were originally targeting the oil and gas industry, you're kind of looking at that going, okay, how on earth could this possibly tie to sustainability? But when I was in the MBA program, I was an intern with Surge Accelerator, which was a clean tech and energy accelerator. I was working for Silicon Valley Bank. There were, I mean, we were a team of just three people writing the entire clean tech investment strategy for all of SVB. So I always really loved sustainability. I'd started my career doing sustainable development, though largely with a more economic focus that we did have some water projects. And so I always really had a passion for that. And I saw these corrosion coatings as a way that we could still tie that in. It was still speaking the language. It was still chemicals. Folks understood that. 
but we had a green product line that had no VOCs. And then also simply by switching to our products, folks could reduce their use of other chemicals by 4X. So that right there, that has, takes a huge toll in terms of your emissions and reducing it, especially when some of the companies with whom we were speaking were literally manufacturing plants next door to an elementary school. Right. And you don't want kids breathing that. No, you don't want anybody breathing that. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. You don't want anyone breathing it, but let, let alone like the five-year-olds who are on the playground right next to the facility where you're looking at the chemicals they're using. They're like, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, nobody should be breathing that. Right. So so let's start. Let's start from the beginning. Why did you decide to come to Rice? So, so are you born and raised in Houston? I am. So I'm born and raised in Houston. I knew that I really did want to come back to Texas. I'd been living in Virginia for seven years. I went to William and Mary for undergrad, and then I was in the D.C. area for several years managing community and economic development, stabilization, infrastructure projects around the world. And I just missed it. I was kind of homesick in a sense. And fortunately, my now husband visited Texas and loved it. So we moved down together. He went to UT Southwestern to get his PhD. I got my MBA from Rice. And it just felt like coming home. I love that. It, it does. It definitely, it, I mean, it's coming home. And Rice also there's an opportunity here to really connect with your professors and they're small cohorts. And it's really an opportunity to build that network and sustain that network for the rest of your life. So you are very much a serial entrepreneur. I guess that's the definition of who you are. And so tell me about your background and your family and what really propelled you to start all of these incredible businesses. I have to say, I think that having a family of entrepreneurs really helps because that's what you're used to seeing. Both of my grandfathers started businesses. My dad had started or he took over his father's business. But in a sense, he was an entrepreneur himself because when he took it over, it wasn't in great shape and he completely transformed it. So he's at an age where a lot of folks are looking to retire right now. And instead, he's just started another company. And so he's rapidly growing that one. So it's just a natural thing in my family of, yeah, sure, you go start a company. And then when I had stepped away from A76 and I was in my, as I call it, my recovering CEO phase, trying to assess, see what I wanted to do next. I was again doing, in a sense, working as my own business. And I was working with other startups, specifically doing early stage consulting. So... I really like that, that early stage of companies. It's very exciting. So tell me about the newest company that you're a part of, which also has a Rice connection. Exactly. So I had been doing the freelance consulting and every year since I'd been at Rice, I had spoken at Hank Moyweir's innovation class. Hank is an adjunct professor at Rice. He was at Shell Game Changers for 20 plus years. And that was actually where I first met him when he was at Shell and I had A76, we were talking about these corrosion coatings that I was working with. And when I was in the race business plan competition, he was one of my judges. And through that connection, I was speaking at his class every year. So he knew all of my career because, you know, it's often a similar story, but also just more of my background, the fact that my family has a ranch and everything. So when he was starting this soil carbon storage company, I was doing my annual talk at his class and we were talking afterwards 
And I ended up joining initially freelance to help out with talking to more ranchers since I kind of spoke their language. And it's so funny just how these things turn out. Within a few months, I had joined the team full time and have been there ever since. So explain to me, or those of us that don't know, how does Grassroots Carbon, how does it work? Yes. And it's a very, it's a very new industry. So I know it's, people are kind of looking at this going, what is that? What is soil carbon storage? So basically what we do is we're a broker or an aggregator of soil carbon storage credits. These are credits where every credit represents one metric ton of actual carbon drawdown and sequestration that is done through healthy soils. And the way to do that is through regenerative grazing practices. So we find ranchers who are engaged in good practices or also will train folks to improve their practices and actually draw down carbon in the soil. And then we go, we take everything through this whole measurement process, certification, and then we deliver those credits to carbon credit buyers. So those are companies like Marathon looking to reduce their carbon footprint and also really invest in good practices and support American ranchers. And then also companies like Shopify, where they have both their sustainability fund and they have a way of offering it to others. In June, they launched their Shopify Planet app. So now anybody selling through Shopify can opt into this app and ship carbon neutral. And we're helping to support that. And so it's something that also gives access for small businesses. So it's carbon credit trading. I'd say we're more of a project developer. We're not really trading the credits necessarily. But I think within a few years, we're going to see companies and people buying carbon credits to basically be a new commodities market. Absolutely. And that's something that I've noticed as well. And a lot of people are, you know, there's a lot more attention being focused on on this specific way of really sustainability with throughout the country. I mean, people recognize the need for this, you know, I mean, the U.S. is one of the biggest carbon emissions I guess, what's the best word for it? Uh, you know, We're a big emitter. Uh, <laughs> we do have a pollution problem. And that's what's so funny is, you know, really pollution shouldn't be controversial. Just I feel like not wanting to breathe dirty air isn't that controversial of a statement or not wanting to have chemicals in your water should be controversial. Then really awesome thing with regenerative agriculture and the carbon credits that can be generated from it is that there's really no downside. You start, you're improving your soil health, which is improving your water retention and improves the water cycle, which can reduce flooding. And any Houstonian who was there during Harvey knows full well what happens when the grasslands west of town have been paved over. And so we have so many benefits from this, the, also the improved biodiversity, ecosystem restoration, et cetera that there's really no downside for regenerative agriculture, especially when then you can generate these credits and put money back in the hand of American land stewards. Absolutely. So let's go back to when you were in the rice business plan competition. Uh, you, <laughs> yeah. you got second place and then went on to to really, I mean, you, you got a term sheet for your business. Yes, we did. So, and it was funny because we were second place, but I think we actually walked away with more prizes than the grand prize winner. That's <laughs> the fun thing with the rice business plan competition is that people just throw out prizes left and right. And so we ended up getting some that we didn't even expect or hadn't even been on the list of a possible prize to win. So it was fun. That was a very exciting awards dinner. <laughs> 
you know, the other thing that many people may not know is that you are named one of the Forbes 30 under 30 in the energy category in 2015, just a year after graduation. So, wow, congratulations. That (laughs) must have been pretty spectacular. Thanks. Yeah, it was very exciting. It felt like a big validation for what we had been doing, too, because they go through a pretty rigorous vetting process. So that was very exciting. And I feel like, though, I did get some help on that from, again, another race connection. Allison Sawyer, who had graduated a few years before me, had actually been the one to nominate me for the Forbes 30 Under 30. So, again, it's just funny, these different race connections that have been popping up along the way. And so so what actually got you involved or curious about sustainability? I'd always been really interested in sustainability, and that's both the environmental side as well as the community impact side and really how those two tie together. So with the first part of my career, I was doing that quite a bit. And the reason I was always interested in that is growing up with a ranch and again, it's predominantly recreational. We do have a small cow-calf operation, so I don't want to make it sound too fancy. But that said, you really see the impacts of the environmental changes and what that means. And when those occur, you see what that impact is on the towns nearby, too. So when there are huge droughts, heat waves, et cetera, you're seeing that firsthand because you're actually looking at the land every day. And during COVID, I had a really good chance to actually sit back and sort of reevaluate. It was one of those just, you know, think about my life for a minute, take a pause. And when I was doing that, I realized something that I had really been missing was feeling every day like what I was doing had impact, where I could sit back at the end of the day and say, okay, what I did today mattered. And that's what I love with my current role at Grassroots Carbon is every day I feel like I've done something like that. I've helped a company figure out how to mitigate their climate impact. You know, that can be working with their supply chains. That can be helping them just purchase credits to offset their emissions, because at the end of the day, folks can only do so much to completely eliminate their emissions. And that also always is really exciting because everything we're doing on the businesses is going to ranchers. And so having grown up and seen these rural communities get hit by so many different environmental factors, economic factors, et cetera, which all really intertwine, I can see what's happening when we put money back in the hands of these American ranchers. Well, and waking up every morning and and just being driven, you know, I think that's what everybody's goal is to find what drives you. And it seems like you have certainly found that. Yes, I definitely have. And I love it. It makes it a lot easier to get out of bed when you're not going, oh, God, another day of work. Especially being a new mom. So so you're a brand new mom. So tell me about that. Well, so sleep, you know, that goes away for a while. Uh, We've actually been very lucky. He's very easygoing. Uh, And I've got like, my hearing's not so great. It's specifically in the range of babies screaming really terribly. So (laughs) it's kind of my superpower. Slept right through the night when he was teething. And (laughs) amazing. it, it is exciting to have him though. And especially working in sustainability, again, doing something every day that I feel like matters and is creating a better future for him. You know, when I'm done with work for the day, I could be proud of that and kind of be like, you know, mom did something for you today. Hopefully the world will be on fire for you in, you know, 15 years. <laughs> it won't be. It won't be. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna think positive because there's, yeah. you know, like I said, this is a this is a booming industry. And it is, 
it is a bit in its infancy. So so you really opened the door and continue to open the door f- for this sustainability initiative. Yeah, and it's very exciting to be at this phase. It is, as often described, the Wild West still, but it's exciting. And we get to have these different milestones that nobody's ever reached before. Back in January, Grassroots Carbon was the first ever company to pay American ranchers for delivered soil carbon credits. And we paid out over $200,000. And it was something, too, that is kind of emotional because it really impacted these folks. Some of them who had been doing regenerative practices for a long time where you're eliminating your herbicides, your fertilizers, you're really getting rid of all your inputs and having more cattle on the property, but just rotating them frequently. Some of these folks were being told by their neighbors they were crazy. It would never work. Well, not only have they improved their profitability over the years, but now they're also getting these big payouts. And year one, one of the ranchers got over six figures in a payout. And he was visibly emotional at feeling like his practices had been validated. So it's really exciting to be at this stage where we can show folks, we're not going to use a stick to get you to change to regen. Here's the carrot. We want you to transition and we'll pay you for that too. Well, as you and I probably both learned at Rice, the the best innovations are the craziest. Yeah. Right? (laughs) It's the crazy ideas that make the biggest impact on our world. The ones that people say that will never work in a million years. You're nuts. Yeah. And it's so funny because everybody is looking at climate solutions, at these huge technology-based solutions. And here we are going, you know what? Let's just give cows grass. Let's just move them the way they should be moved. And it's so funny because it sounds insane when you're telling people in the industry but it's so effective. It improves profitability, improves biodiversity, improves the water systems, as I mentioned, and then they can make money off it too. There's really no downsides versus with some of the forestry you can end up, you know, you've got to worry about what if there's a drought? What if there's a wildfire? That's not an issue with ranching. People go burn fields as a controlled burn all the time. So it's a really exciting place to be in. That's awesome. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about something that I think is also very important with entrepreneurship, because it is filled with trial and error, as we all know. And failure is a real risk, but it can also be an essential stepping stone to success. So can you tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it? (laughs) Well, I think what ended up happening with A76 could only be described as a failure in a sense. But at the same time, it was a wonderful learning experience. So ultimately, we ended up in a big dispute with the inventor. And I mean, it was just a mess, frankly. We had issues with our investors. And, you know, you never expect to get sued for somebody saying that you didn't tell them something when it was literally in the board minutes and the pre-reading materials that they had reviewed from five years earlier. It just seems like you would think that can't occur, but it did. And it was very stressful. That was a really tough time to go through that. But I think that was something that was a good lesson as an entrepreneur is one, like that's as rough as it can get. I think like, you know, the company's struggling, we're not getting sued, you know, where do you go downhill from there? But what it really did show is one, the extent to which if you have 
done what you felt were making the right steps along the way, you can look back at that and say, okay, I did do what I thought I was doing is the best thing at that time. And you can also see who will really stand by you and be your support network. It's so important not to get completely lost in your business and to have people who are still supporting you so that when you are in a tough time like that, there are others you can rely on. You're not just sitting there stressed, alone, crying out by yourself, going, you know, what's going on? You have a you have folks you can lean on. Right. And did you, I'm sure that you probably leaned on your Rice Network and Rice Connections. I did. Allison Sawyer, who I mentioned, you know, she was a wonderful person to be able to rely on because she'd also had a company. And so she understood just the the physical and emotional toll it takes to be a CEO. And I also had, you know, great friends from that network. So that was all really helpful. Right. And and as an entrepreneur, I think somebody smart said that you don't ever actually fail. You either succeed or you learn. Yes, it was definitely a wonderful learning experience overall, looking back at my time with the company, because there were so many different challenges along the way. You know, we had to do a rebranding two years in because we couldn't use the name A76 anymore. It was too similar to 76 lubricants. And that felt like, oh my gosh, we've got to rebrand. But at the same time, it was fine because we could actually now choose a name that we felt really represented what we were doing with the products. We could have these Rust Patrol products. And so it actually turned into a great experience about just learning how to pivot, how to build a brand. And something along those lines, too, that we were doing at the same time, we had set out to be selling to the oil and gas industry. Well, I think a lot of folks in Houston will remember what occurred at the end of 2014, and it was not great for the oil and gas industry. And 2015 was a really bad time to be trying to sell products to them. I had sales reps going on calls and trying to talk about Rust Patrol. And instead, the people are asking us for a job and if we were hiring. And so that was, <laughs> was like, I don't know, send over your resume. Let's see what yeah. we got, right? <laughs> so it was wonderful, though, to see that again, it was a huge challenge. But OK, wait, let's pivot. So that's where we ended up going into other sectors, too, of ag, of retail, et cetera. And so, again, that just gave great experience in those other industries. And and so A76 was was a lubricant that was rust resistant, correct? Yeah. So it was a corrosion coating and lubricant. And so folks could use that to protect equipment that was just sitting in a warehouse after manufacture. It also worked as a penetrating oil to free stuck parts or just, you know, keep things moving too. So it had a variety of uses and it was really funny. We had folks, again, on the sales calls, especially when things were shutting down, Nobody was manufacturing anything. And this is what it inspired us to go into retail is the sales reps would show back up, see how things worked. And these guys in facilities would be like, well, no, we're not making anything, but I took it home and used it on my bike, car, boat, et cetera. And they were giving us all these testimonials and case studies. So we went ahead and just pivoted. And that's the biggest lesson that you can learn about entrepreneurship is that you've got to pivot and you also have to listen to your customers and to those around you and to really keep your eyes and ears open because you never know what gems are hidden inside, you know? Absolutely. And that was what inspired us to even make an aerosol can in the first place was that we were just selling in five gallon or 55 gallon drums. And so our samples were these little two ounce pump bottles. 
And we didn't even have a price point for those and people wanted to buy them. And if they were going to buy them, I mean, might as well. It was 2015. Times were tough in terms of selling to the oil and gas industry. So since there was that demand, we went ahead to meet it. And the products are still being sold there. Uh, we ended up selling the trademarks and everything to our old manufacturers rep. So it's still around and people like them. What's it called? I want to go run out and get some for myself. <laughs> so it's still it's still under the Rust Patrol brand. And so we, we'd been building a great brand. And so we ended up after kind of everything had gone on with the company, ended up selling to them. Awesome. So being a female entrepreneur and a CEO, there's definitely been a transition where more women have been given an opportunity to lead in these roles as CEO and in those C-suite roles. So what do you think are essential skills for female entrepreneurs? So for women entrepreneurs, I think a big thing is being resilient because you're going to hear some stuff and it's just shocking. Like I remember being at a conference for startups in New Orleans and they had all these swag, the swag out on the tables and there were these t-shirts. So I was looking for a size, you know, maybe I'd take one home for my husband because they didn't seem to have my size. And this guy, he's a, I could see his VC label and all on his name badge. And he asked what I was looking for. And I said, I was looking for, you know, an XL shirt. And he's like, oh, here's one. And I was like, perfect. I'll give that to my husband to wear. And he goes, oh, I don't want to think of him wearing it. I want to think of you wearing it. I was like, what? <laughs> Excuse me, sir. And so I think just being resilient, recognizing that you're going to come across folks like that and being okay to frankly call them out. You know, we're at a point now, I don't think we need to put up with some of the stuff that we used to or that people were willing to put up with. There are so many investors now who recognize the benefits of women entrepreneurs, of how hard working we are, that we can really get things done. And if you find somebody who does not seem like a good fit, like I can't imagine being a woman entrepreneur with that BC, uh, you don't have to work with somebody like that. You can find somebody who really is a good fit for you and who treats you with the respect that you deserve. Right. And you have to demand it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those are those are non-negotiables, <laughs> so to speak. So, yeah. So I do have a very interesting fact about you that I'd also like to discuss. So you were on the men's fencing team uh, at William and Mary. That's amazing. So tell yes. me about that. And you and you competed on a national level. Yes, I did. And so it was kind of funny because, yeah, it was just me on this men's team, and it was really funny. Our coach was this eighty-four-year-old guy who, the way he'd always phrase it is, he he retired from the CIA. That's because he joined when it was still the OSS prior to even being the CIA and had worked there for his whole career. So he's, you know, kind of grouchy old man, wasn't sure when I showed up, but I'd been experienced and quickly earned my place on the team. And it was great to see how he went from being skeptical of me to being one of my biggest advocates. He refused to go to one of the national club meets once because the organizer wasn't going to let me compete on my own team. He, in less polite words than what I'm using, told the guy to go stick it where the sun don't shine and <laughs> refused to go. He still sent us as a team. He didn't want to deprive us of that, but he wanted to make a big statement. And they didn't let me compete on the men's team. I was the one I had to be at this like one woman team on my own women's team. 
And, you know, I still did pretty well, but it was really fun to see somebody go from being skeptical to being that level of an advocate for you. And I think that that's true of women in business in general. Yeah. Yeah. So it it, it sort of mirrors, it mirrors life. Yeah. And again, it's one of those things where you can see who your supporters really are, because I ended up with a great group of friends from the guys on that team. And so when we had when that happened, I remember uh, I was, you know, just my one woman team. Some of the guys would stand behind me, kind of like bodyguards uh, so that we could look intimidating. And I didn't have to just stand there on my own throughout the meet. So it was just funny to do things like that. Yeah, no, for sure. That's an incredible story. So what does the future hold for you? So right now, I'm really excited about what I'm doing. I'm really enjoying the nature-based solution space. It's very exciting to be in, a, in an industry at its, at its infancy because there's so much change that can occur from here. And I think that folks are starting to pay more attention to it. So I love the idea that we can just work with nature to support climate efforts that can also just, again, have no downside and really support both folks living in cities as well as rural. Excellent. Excellent. I love that. Is there anything that you would like to add that I have not asked you about? Well, I just think this is always good for folks to remember at Rice. This was, I think, the best advice I got there was at the time our our Dean Sean Ferguson would always say, if you're not networking, you're not working. And that is something that I have seen over and over to be true. I mean, if I hadn't stayed in touch with Hank through the years, I wouldn't be in my current role. I wouldn't have discovered this industry that I really love. And so remembering to stay in touch with folks, I think, is always really helpful. And remember, it's not always about just asking something for yourself. It's also asking how you can help them, too. And and let's talk a little bit about Rice. So how does Rice stand apart from other institutions? So if somebody is looking at other, you know, MBA programs in the state of Texas and beyond, why should they choose Rice over another school? So this is actually, I'm stealing somebody else's words, but years ago when I was thinking about MBA programs, where I wanted to go, this is when I was first looking at programs all over the country, I was reading a message board on poets and quants. I don't even know if that's still around. Maybe it is. It is. It is. Okay, there we go. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, because that was, you know, 10 plus years ago now. Rice had come up on this conversation about MBA programs, and I was looking for something that was more entrepreneurial because I've just always loved that. And something that somebody said on there that has just always stuck with me is that with a school like Rice, they do things right. So they were talking about developing our entrepreneurship program. And That is something that just really has resonated. And I've seen that with Rice, not just with the entrepreneurship program, but all sorts of things on campus. Rice really does do things right. If there's something they see that can be a benefit to students, they just jump in. I mean, you look at the design kitchen and that is such a cool, innovative space. Or now we have Lily and we've got this whole entrepreneurship center and There's so many different functions and ways that they work together across campus. I think what the Rice Alliance does in terms of bringing together these different technology intersections, et cetera, is just such a unique feature 
And again, Rice is just doing it right. They are really creating wonderful ways for folks to intersect, to engage. And it could be something as, you know, partio, where it's just a chance where you're talking with folks and you never know what that's going to turn into. It's a very dynamic place for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Okay, well, we we are so grateful for your time today, and we loved having this conversation with you. <laughs> and, Thanks so and much we, for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, who knows? Maybe little Logan, your sweet little boy, might be a Rice MBA graduate as well. I know. Exactly. Exactly. little bias around here. I've got an owl lamp in his bedroom just to, you know, slowly start that subliminal messaging. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. This has been I'll Have You Know, a production of Rice Business. You can find more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe and leave a rating wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, Maya Pomeroy, and Scott Gale.